This is going to be an interesting day. Later on this hour, I need to get your thoughts on something. I need a, a little report card on my parenting. Okay? I do my best. If you've ever been a parent before, you know that you can't grab a textbook. You can't grab a handbook. I always get a kick out of all of the little baby books at the beginning. Here's how to parent. Make sure you read chapter three. That's a good one. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks for writing that. I'm glad that you seem to have made money off your little parenting book. All the what to expect when you're expecting. They turned that into a movie. Terrible movie. Don't watch it. I didn't get through all of it. But you don't know. You have no idea. Your kid will do something that is not in chapter three. Your kid will do something that has never been in a chapter. You have no idea. You have to assess each situation. Being a parent, in my mind, is the ideal for why you can't live in a hindsight is 2020 world. Because every day you'll be called upon to make a decision or make a judgment and you'll make it. And then a day later, a week later, a month later, you can look back and go, I was an idiot. What was I thinking? Look at what has happened because of what I said or what I did. You know, it doesn't even have to be a judgment call with your child. It can just be something you do and you think, oh, how did I let them see me do that? I'm an idiot. And that goes on. Today, there is a high school walkout. And my son is planning on taking part. I have no issue with it. And I'll lay out the reasoning in behind it a little later on. But I want to know, did I make the right choice as a parent? Am I doing the right thing as a parent? I have no idea. As a parent, you would never know. You know, you, you hope your kids turn out okay. And that's about it. You want to keep them safe. You hope they're healthy. You hope they're happy. Beyond that, no idea. So please give me a parent report card later on this hour. Uh, we may give Donald Trump, U.S. President, a report card on his knowledge of Canada. Whew, does this guy know our country? <laughs> wow. From that song, that good song, I think he called it, we'll get the exact clip, to what else? Not much. I have to play you a clip. And if you love Donald Trump, bear with me. Seriously. You got to defend this guy. We'll do that in about a half hour from now. We have a chance for you to win some Knights tickets on the show today. We are going to talk some London Knights and some Guelph Storm. We'll talk some Continental Cup of curling as it returns to the city of London. And we are also actually going to take a look in a little tiny one-year hindsight check on the trucking industry in this country and how the trucking industry has changed because we are coming up on one year since the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. And boy, does this have to be a tough time for the families. Not only are you reminded of what took place a year ago and so many of them lost their sons or their grandsons or their friends, their brothers, but now you have that national attention on you again. And you have people wanting to know how you're doing. How do you think they're doing? They're probably not doing all that well. They never will be doing well. You know, when you lose somebody, you, you hear that description of you just never feel whole. That doesn't change. A person doesn't return at some point to make you whole again. 
So it is a difficult weekend. So we're going to be in conversation with Heather Yorick's West, who is a network digital journalist. She's been talking with some of the families, but more importantly, she has also been looking at some of the advocacy that some of the family members have been doing for changes in the trucking industry. And the fact that, yes, there have been changes. They widespread enough. They made enough of a difference. A lot of people will say no, but it's one step at a time. So that's where we sit there. That's coming up later on London Live. First, though, we have a question about you. And we have a question about your body. And it does come up, in most cases, after you are finished with that particular body. It deals with organ donation. Because if you look at the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, one of the things that it certainly did bring about was recognition of the importance of organ donation. The number of the victims, the players who lost their lives, who were able to help. Logan Boulay is somebody who has been, has been front and center in terms of the memory of what he did in helping out others. And we're going to hear a lot about organ donation. Tomorrow, we are encouraged to wear green and really show support. But at the same time that that recognition is there, and at the same time that the attention is there for organ donation, there are other things happening, especially in a place like Nova Scotia, where their province is considering an opt-out for organ donation. So it's called opt-out or it's called presumed consent, where you are an organ donor until you say you are no longer an organ donor. How do you feel about that? Is that okay with you? As an organ donor, I really, I don't have an issue with that. If, if my body is no longer of use to me and it can help somebody else, yeah, go ahead. I wouldn't mind presumed consent. It's not something that, that I'm concerned about. But let's maybe find out a little bit more about this. And the best place to go is the Trillium Gift of Life Network. And we are very pleased to have with us on London Live their president and CEO, Ronnie Gavsey. Ronnie, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Good to be with you, Mike. Let's look at presumed consent and and maybe try and understand everything involved in it. When somebody asks you, Ronnie, what is presumed consent? What do you tell them? Presumed consent means that by default, you are an organ donor when you die, unless you specifically indicate on a form that you opt out. Now, so it's, it's default. When we look at organ donation, so many times we talk about how few organ donors we actually have. The fact that you don't have everyone who is listed as an organ donor, and in terms of numbers, are we getting any closer to having a, a great number of organ donors? Well, we have 33% of our population in Ontario registered. Uh, not enough. But I will say that in London, you're doing better at 42%. But still, there are 1,600 on the wait list. Every three days, one of them dies just waiting. And 35 of those people waiting are in London. Wow. Now, like you say, we we have better numbers here than what would be the national average, but overall, what would be a number that you would look at and say, you know, we're getting somewhere? Is there even a number? 
Well, we're aiming for 51%. That would mean we have a culture of donation where the majority of people have normalized this and and automatically uh, see registration is the right thing to do. But we're, it's taking a lot of work to get there. And we're right in the thick of Be a Donor Month. We're thinking about Logan Boulay and his family. We're going to wear green shirts on April 8th. And we'll hope to see those registration numbers skyrocket. So April 8th is the official day to be wearing green shirts. Correct. Okay, April the 8th. And right now we're at the 4th, so Friday is the 5th, Saturday is the 6th. That makes Monday, April the 8th, and that's when we want to be wearing green shirts. In terms of of opt-in, it would sound like an absolute ideal, presumed consent, where you are basically born an organ donor. If you would like to not be on the list, you have that right, and you can remove yourself from the list. How do you feel about that? Well, we're always happy about any opportunity to debate it. It brings a lot of attention uh, to our uh, cause. Uh, In Ontario, we have an opt-in system, which means people can register their wishes to become an organ donor or a tissue donor after death, and they should tell their families because their families will be asked. The important thing to know about presumed consent is that it is not an automatic donation. The family will still be asked, and they could still decline. And the question we ask ourselves is, what would be the trigger to that family ever having had a conversation without the opportunity to register? That's a good question because, yeah, it probably wouldn't come up. If if you are presumed something, then there's no reason to have a conversation about that unless it comes up because of a, a story in the news or because of, of something that had happened. You're right. It, it wouldn't come up. It wouldn't come up. And, and we also have a concern that people may say, my loved one wouldn't have realized what he was reading or she was reading on that form. Or another concern is that there may be people who say, if the government is going to force me to do X, then I am automatically not going to do X. It may just not fit our culture, but but we are going to watch Nova Scotia very carefully, hope for their success, and and learn from them. Now, when you say that... When there is presumed consent, sometimes a family can can make changes to that. If, let's say, we have an opt-in situation, which we do in Ontario, does that mean once someone is an organ donor, that is the last word, or does it still go to the family as well? Well, in our system, and according to our legislation, uh, the registered consent is legally binding. However, if the family... Uh, tells us they have reason to believe their loved one changed his or her mind, then the medical team will not proceed. They will not proceed. And we're talking about minutes and seconds mattering here. If if we're going to have a holdup, that almost renders a lot of organs unusable and, and tissues unusable as well, does it not? Yes, it's a very fragile, time-sensitive process. But the majority of families who knew what their loved one wanted and have evidence that they registered, which we can give them, they consent.
Ronnie Gaffsey joining us, president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Again, wear green on Monday, April the 8th, in support of organ donation and tissue donation, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. And, of course, Logan Boulay, who was a victim who died in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. Certainly his story highlighted the importance of organ donation and what it can do. Now... With regard to being an organ donor, Ronnie, you've outlined this before, the certain things that have to be done. If somebody has a cardboard slip in their wallet and they've checked the box or if they've written down, oh, by the way, I am an organ donor on a little piece of paper and kind of taped it to their license, that's not necessarily going to get it done should an instance arise where they could be an organ donor, is it? You are absolutely correct, Mike, and making such an important point especially when we're in Be a Donor Month and we're educating. We no longer have donor cards. You must register consent either at www.beadonor.ca or through Service Ontario. It, It must be formally done. Such an important message on Be a Donor Month. Register consent and tell your family. And, Ronnie, I guess the last thing, we have organ donation, but tissue donation. Are they two different things in terms of consent, or are they wrapped up into one? They're wrapped up into one. You'll see when you go into the registry, uh, when you go into beadonor.ca, it will ask you whether you agree to donate all organs and tissues or certain of them, and it will detail exactly what you have to consider. All right. Well, Ronnie, we really appreciate the information. It is Be a Donor Month, beadonor.ca. If you are someone that maybe carries around that card and now is just finding out, you know what, that's not actually going to provide official consent. You really do need to register at beadonor.ca or go to Service Ontario. Ronnie, please keep up the great work. Great to be with you, Mike, and thank you. Have a great day. Bye. It's Ronnie Gavsey, president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. So interesting when it comes to presumed consent, that actually becomes a problem. And I hadn't thought of it in this way, but Ronnie raised it. Have you had a conversation with your family? Because ultimately, if you have presumed consent, you have no real way of stating this is what I want to do. This is what I want to have happen. You've never done it. Well, no, we just we presume that. However, it then falls to your family. And if you've never had the conversation, they have no idea. And a lot of times they may say, yeah, I, we just never had that conversation. I, I wouldn't want to donate those organs and tissues if, if, I, if I didn't have their consent. And I don't have their consent and they're not here to give it anymore. So then you run into that issue. And then we still have the numbers of people on waiting lists dying. And our national average is just over 30%. In London, hey, congratulations. We're over 40%, but we're not at 60% or 70%. And I'm willing to bet that there is not 60% of the population that is saying, no, I don't want to be an organ donor. I'm willing to bet there's a good chunk of that part of the population that would say, yeah, yeah, I I am. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm an organ donor. Have you had the conversation? If you haven't, it's not an easy one to have, but it's an important one to have. How do you feel about presumed consent? Is that the way to do it? I'm thinking now 
No, that's not the way to do it. You've got to make sure that this is this is hard and fast what you want. If you don't want to donate your organs and tissues, you have that right. That is entirely up to you. But if you do, you've got to find a way to say, yeah, this is what I want. It's kind of like your wishes for a funeral or wishes for after you die. If you don't lay that out, if you don't have a will, everything is, is completely up in the air. And it can become complete chaos. And in this case, it can cost lives. You got to think of it that way. Let's take a break. We'll return with more in a moment. 519-643-2222. Have you had that conversation? How have you entered into that conversation? And what do you think about presumed consent? You okay with somebody saying, yeah, right off the bat, everybody is in it this way. Everybody is an organ and tissue donor until you say, no, I'm not. 519-643-2222. I have a couple of minutes for your thoughts. You can also email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We are underway on a Thursday. This is Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Coming up, we will talk about some words from U.S. President Donald Trump that I found interesting. Again, it goes to needing a speechwriter. You get a kick out of them. We will also talk organ donation past our news break at 1.30, given the number of individuals that we've got who want to weigh in on this. 519-643-2222. We were talking with Ronnie Gavsey, president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network, about presumed consent. And I would have thought, hey, what's wrong with that? Ronnie pointed it this way. If you have presumed consent... Number one, it's like saying, well, the government's just going to make you do this, and a lot of people don't like hearing that. Number two, you've never had a conversation, and the family still has an opportunity to say, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. And then they don't allow it to happen. James, what do you think about this? Uh, well, I think that it should be mandatory unless you have some type of religious objection to it. I think that there's uh, – and if – and honestly, if you are out there thinking that, oh, I don't want them to take my, my organs and I'm going to take myself off that list, well, then you shouldn't be allowed on any list that you receive organs for it. Hey, I'm, I'm with you. I am absolutely with you. You know, we, we look at the numbers and I think it's up to Nova Scotia to kind of pave the way on this to see what works and what doesn't. And they've offered to be the guinea pig in this situation. I'm really interested to see how it goes over. James, thanks for the call. When it's your daughter or wife, you'll be changing your mind. That's it. That's just it. You said it right there. When it is someone you love and you can save their life and you can't save their life or they are left on that waiting list when we could make those wait times shorter. James, you just hit on it. Thanks for that. 519-643-2222. Marilyn, how about you? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, would they uh, take the organs of an old lady? Uh, you know what? I, you, I've met you. You're in fantastic shape. You've been looking out or looking after yourself. I'm not sure what, what the restrictions are, if there are any. We'll have to look into that. But would you do it? Of course. Yeah. 
I'm going to be cremated anyway, so what the heck if I haven't got a few organs? That's it. I'm not making use of them after I'm gone. No, that's it, too. I've got my funeral planned pretty well, but I've changed a few. I've got to change a few, a few things, but now my children, could they um, uh, look after that? About uh, As organs? long as you have that conversation with them, and the best thing to do, as we were told by Ronnie Gavsey, go to beadonor.ca and make sure you register. But if your children know what your wishes are, then they're going to do their best to carry them out. So that's the key. Have the conversation. Marilyn, we got to run for news. Okay, you have a dear. great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We've got more calls. Please hang on if you are on hold, and we'll return in just a moment. News with Jacqueline LaBelle is coming up, and then we'll continue to talk about presumed consent, opt-in, when it comes to organ donation. I liked the idea until I heard it eliminates the conversation And that can create confusion, and you don't have time for confusion when we're talking about organ donation. Not when making the decision, when the donation is being made. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We have been talking organ donation to start the show. Nova Scotia is looking at presumed consent, in other words, words, opt-out. So you are presumed an organ donor until you say otherwise. 519-643-2222. Jeff, how do you feel about that? Hey, well, I am for the organ donation. Uh, As one of your callers, though, said yesterday, you know, I I kind of pause when it comes to government overreach. But, um, you know, I'm totally for it. And actually, you know, I've had cornea transplants, so, I mean, certainly not life and death, but but I've certainly been the recipient of somebody um, signing that sheet, right? So um, I'm all for it. I think people have to uh, have to have that, that difficult conversation. And the reality is none of us are get, getting out of here alive. So have that conversation. Um, talk to your family. Tell them you want to be an organ donor. And then you know what? While you're at it, tell them what you want for, you know, at your funeral service. Because I, I'm a celebrant. I do about 100 funerals a year. Um, often I'll sit down with the family. They have no idea, you know, what their loved one wants. And it's a difficult time. It's emotional. Have the difficult conversation with your family and say, hey, I want to be an organ donor. This is the music. These are the readings. This is who I want to speak at my funeral. Have those difficult conversations. Um, it's not fun, but it is reality. No, that's a that's a great point. What do you do with a family when you're both looking at each other and saying, "Yeah, I I really don't know what they would have wanted." What happens then? Well, I mean, I I've been doing this long enough that I you know I ask a lot of questions, right? Um, but it's a struggle. It can be a struggle for some, uh, especially if they're blindsided. You know, they don't see it coming. Um, but, you know, I just ask questions and, you know, spend an hour, hour and a half with them and take all that in. And eventually I'm able to, you know, glean some, you know, some information that I can uh, kind of go down the, the road for the funeral or memorial, celebration of life, whatever you want to call it. And, and you know, pay a proper tribute to that individual. Right. And Jeff, before we let you go, being a transplant recipient, tell us how your life changed. Well, for me, I mean, it was it was visual, right? So I, I wasn't going to lose my life. Uh, so I, I certainly can't um, uh, I, I can't understand or relate to those who you know need a liver or kidney and all that stuff. But um, 
you know, uh, I was nearsighted, you know, from, I guess, grade three on. Um, but then I had a problem called keratoconus that, that propped up, cropped up when I was 16. So then when I was 20 and 21, I had those, uh, the transplants done. So, hmm. uh, I'm still nearsighted, but you know, my corneas are, everything's good and proper and, and working well there. So for me, it was, uh, much more convenient, <laughs> I guess. But at the same time, it's something that did make a difference in your life. Jeff, thanks so much for the call. Hey, no problem. Thanks for sharing that. 519-643-2222. Bob, thanks for hanging on. Hey, hey, Mike. How you doing? Hey, pretty good. Yeah, you know, I don't mind uh, giving organs after I'm gone. If, if they can find anything good in there, good luck to you. But <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? There are stipulations, and it does depend on a lot of things in life. They, they want to make sure that the organs that are being harvested for donation are going to be able to help somebody. So, no, you make a good point. Yeah, uh, but I'm not uh, for this presumed or slash mandatory because I think it's going to lead to uh, some lawsuits. There's, there's going to be some confusion somewhere uh, along the way where you're going to have uh, somebody who didn't opt out, but the family maybe knew they didn't want that, but they already went and took the organs, and then it's going to be... Yeah, it can make a mess, evil. and that, that was something yeah. that Ronnie kind of alluded to, the idea that you never have that conversation. Maybe what we need, maybe what we need is an annual day where everybody turns to the person that they find on their right, or everybody finds a family member and asks that question, and we just simply take notes or, you know, take a video, video the person on your right, here's what they want, and then they're stored somewhere. I think we need a day like that, and that would, that would alleviate yeah. a lot of confusion. Bob, thanks for the yeah. call. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. Back to the phones we go. TC, how are you? Hey, how are you? Hey, Mike? Not too bad. So yeah, I, I actually I think it's the greatest idea ever. Uh, like the other caller said, I certainly can't take my organs with me when I'm dead. I would love nothing better to actually, uh, you know, get a call saying your organs not somebody else. I would happily be a living donor for anybody. You know, if they needed uh, a kidney or. Uh, you know, long even, you know, you have two of a lot of your organs that you can donate them. So it was happily, happily, happily. And I wish I'd call it. Um, I got a call years and years ago about uh, bone marrow, so I donated bone marrow. And it was quite a painful procedure, I can tell you that. But, you know, when it helps save somebody's life, you know, a week of pain in the thighs is uh, a small price to pay. I can tell you that. So, great. I, I, and I'll be honest. Like, I think just the way you just said about, you know, once a year, a particular day, not needless, silly. There's not going to be lawsuits. You know, the fact is the onus is going to be on the people, and if everybody knows that it's, uh, you know, it's like Rogers did years ago. You had to call them if you didn't want uh, whatever package. Now, just, you're going to make it more difficult. I don't believe there's going to be any lawsuits. I think 99% of the public, I think, would be in favor of, organ donation, if people really knew what's involved in harvesting the organs and donating the organs, because you know what, they don't make it really clear unless you Google stuff, how do they harvest organs and everything. It is not a well, uh, you know, a well-publicized event, shall we say. It's very, very, I've seen it done. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, they are amazing. I mean, it's just like a regular surgical in the OR when they do it. All the precautions are taken. You know, everything's sterile. It's, you know, 
they treat the body with dignity even though the person's passed. Matter of fact, some of the hospitals, believe it or not, say prayers over the uh, dead person's body and that. It's, uh, you know, thanking, uh, thanking God or the person they believe for, uh, you know, hearing, giving the organs. And I just think it's, as I say, Mike, I'm not going to drag it on, but I think it's the greatest idea. Unfortunately, in Canada, our, our organ rates are dismal for what we give. It really is a joke. Yeah, just over 30% is not a good enough number in my it's mind. Not. You know how many people die? I know four people, four personal friends in the last year that have passed away. And I'll tell you, if I could have helped them, I would have jumped on. Like I said, I would happily, anybody, I don't even need to know the person, I would be happy to give one of my organs that would help save somebody that chance. That, to me, would be the, one of the greatest gifts ever that I could receive would be the opportunity to say, can you imagine that? Yeah. Getting a call, you can help save. That would change me, you know, mentally, physically, spiritually. That would just blow my mind. It's a good way to think of it. TC, thanks for the call. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. 519-643-2222. Talking organ donation and presumed consent. Aaron, how do you feel about it? Hi, Aaron. Oh, hi. How are you? you? Not too bad. Good. Um, I just had a double organ transplant. Wow. Yeah, January 1st, actually. So January 1st, you had a double organ transplant. Do you mind hanging on? Can we talk to you about what life is like and how you feel about this in just a minute? Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and I want to hear your story. This is phenomenal. Aaron, thank you for the call. No problem. Okay, hang on. We're going to talk with Aaron in just a moment. Sometimes the best way to realize how something works is to talk to somebody who's been through it. That's what we're going to do in a moment on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll work in, as promised, what Donald Trump has said about Canada. Uh, We are also going to talk more about the London Knights and the Guelph Storm. But we've been talking organ donation and have been getting some really good perspectives on things. Talking with people who have been donor recipients, who have been able to donate bone marrow. And you think about the ability just to save a life. We've also talked with Ronnie Gavsey on the show, the president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network, about the numbers and the fact that London sits up over 40%. Well, that's good, but nationally in Ontario, we're just over 30%. And then we got a call from Aaron, and Aaron joins us again. Aaron had a double transplant in January. Aaron, what did the double transplant consist of? Um, I received a kidney and a pancreas. So I am no longer on dialysis, which I was on six days a week. And I also, after 30 years, I'm no longer diabetic. Wow. So when when you kind of look back at your story, had you been on a donor list for long? Um, actually, London wasn't too bad. I heard people talking about, uh, you know, Winnipeg or Edmonton. I heard something about 10 years. Now, I don't know how that situation works because I have a, a rare blood type, but I was on the list 
for less than a year and a half, and I had two phone calls, which is not bad. And when you get a phone call, what does that mean? Well, I got a phone call. The first one came at 2.30 in the morning, and it was literally they called and said, hi, it's so-and-so from University Hospital. We have an organ, and we need to know if you want it. Here is the situation with the organ. So they'll tell you, um, you know, if there's anything, hepatitis C, um, they tell you if the donor was or was not in jail. They have to, even if it was a day, they don't tell you how long, but they may say, this person at one point was incarcerated. Um, this person lived a, um, a lifestyle that was uh, a little more risky than, say, somebody who didn't do drugs or, you know, had a, had a lifestyle that was, was, I forget the term that they use now. Um, but at the same time, they're giving you enough of a, a, a personal history of the individual who would be donating organs. Right, for you to make a decision. So the first donor um, was hepatitis C positive. They were negative for HIV, AIDS, uh, you know, hepatitis B, C, but the, or sorry, AB, but they were hepatitis C positive. Now, apparently a lot of the organs that are coming through are hepatitis C positive because a lot of them are coming from fentanyl overdoses and things like that, um, which was sort of, uh, in my opinion, not an area that, a lot came from before, but now we're in this crisis. Um, but hepatitis C is also curable. So they'll give you the organ and they give you hepatitis C, but they cure it. So that was the sort of information that they give you over the phone. You know, they do or they don't have this or, you know, and then they say to you, do you want the organ? And I was sort of like, I need 15 minutes to make a couple calls and talk to my husband and, you know, see how he feels. Now, the first call I got, I they called me into the hospital. I packed in the middle of the night, came down, and the next day, I think it was about 14 hours later, they let me know that the organs were no longer viable. So whether the person took too long to expire when they were unplugged or what exactly happened, they don't give you that information. But what I was told was that the organs weren't viable, so they sent me home. That call, I think, was in September, and I got the second call January 31st. Same idea. They give you the info. Do you want the organ? Do you not want the organ? If you do, here's when we need you here. And then you obviously got to a point where you arrived at the hospital. What was that day like? Um, well, it's exciting and it's stressful at the same time. However, I was so sick before that um, that, you know, it, it was almost, I was in a lot of pain from the dialysis I was getting sicker and I was down to like 110 pounds and I was in a lot of pain. So at that point I was kind of to the point where I was like, yep, do it. Just put me under and do it because I, A, it won't hurt while I'm under and B, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be better, you know? Um, But there was a lot of guilt for me personally, because I'm taking an organ from somebody who's had to die to give me the organs. Right. Um, Because I deal with that. How do you, how do you process that? Oh, I tried not to think about it at, at the beginning um, when I did get the second phone call and um, they gave me the information again that this person lived a high-risk lifestyle and I figured out that they probably were or I assumed they were probably some kind of overdose. Um, and for me, it sort of was almost like, and I, this is horrible to say, and I know that addiction is a horrible thing. I've, you know people in my family that were addicts to different things, alcoholics and things like that. But they made a choice in my mind. They made a choice to gamble their life with 
the risk of fentanyl or things like that. It was just a lot easier for me to take than getting organs from the mother of three who was killed by a drunk driver. We're talking with Aaron, and Aaron went through a double transplant in January and has been able to outline things. So you decide to go. What would have happened had you not had a transplant, Aaron? Um, well, I would have been on dialysis. I was getting dialysis six days a week. So I was going uh, Monday to Saturday. Um, but I had had, I think I had like 12 different medical procedures in a year. I had two grand mal seizures. I had um, uh, an infection that, so when they first started me, they put in a dialysis port in your chest and it goes directly to your heart. And I actually got an infection um, in that port, which was, I think, 10 days in ICU. Like, there, you just run all these risks for infection of getting sick, and you get weaker. I was tired. I had no muscle tone. I couldn't work. I was coming home and um, from dialysis and sleeping. That's all I did was sleep. I'd sleep and lose weight. I had no appetite. I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't go far away from the dialysis unit, you know, like I couldn't go down to South Carolina to visit family. I, the kids wanted to go to Disney. I couldn't do that, which by the way, thanks to my donor, I'm leaving tonight for Disneyland with the kids. That's amazing. Okay. Well then, then that kind of paints a picture of what life is like now before we let you go. Can you tell us what life's been like since? Um, you know, you don't even realize, like I wasn't miserable. The, the transplant unit at University Hospital is amazing. The nurses are, like, top-notch. I mean, this is one of the top hospitals. I'm sitting here looking at the orange helicopter out front of University Hospital right now, hoping that, you know, organs came off that chopper today for somebody. Um, but I wasn't even that miserable. However, you know, tonight I'm going to Disneyland. I couldn't shower <laughs> for uh, 17 months because you can't get these ports wet. And I had a port in my stomach, I had a port in my chest, you know, so it was kind of like, you could have a bath, and it had to be a shallow one. So I mean, something as little as taking a shower is a beautiful thing to me now, you know, being able to go to my kids karate tournaments in New York City this October, amazing, being able to swim, I couldn't swim. Um, I couldn't go in a public pool. I couldn't, like, obviously, if I can't go in my shower, I can't go in a public pool. But, um, you know, being able to go away and not pay $900 out of pocket on, uh, you know, somewhere outside of the city to use a dialysis unit that's not mine, you know, and not in in Ontario, um, is amazing. The idea, like, I've got a 13 and a 15-year-old, and they're both in track. I couldn't walk the track. I couldn't walk the track to get to their event because I, I just, I couldn't make it. I had a walker. You know, you're sick. You're really, really sick, and now it's like it's like a new lease on life, and I value these organs. I will never ever disrespect them or or smoke or do something to to risk my organs. I want to tell you something else that's really cool is that in 1989, my husband's mother was flown here from Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and she was the first successful multi-organ transplant at UH. That's incredible. Because this was a world-renowned transplant hospital and so luckily i have a husband who's super supportive because this is not his first time at the rodeo um but yeah his mom was the first multi-organ transplant she was in the bed beside me and patsy who's a nurse up there on the transplant floor was my mother-in-law's nurse 30 years ago 
<laughs> this has been an amazing story. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing it with us today. So happy to hear about the new lease on life. Yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. So as far as I'm concerned, I never even said my opinion on the donors. I feel people can get used to anything. So they've been used to signing their donor cards if they want to donate. And I think that the new generation, if they are taught that they have to opt out of donating their organs, they can learn to do that. Aaron, you enjoy Disney. Say hi to Mickey and friends for us, okay? <laughs> for sure. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That's an amazing story. That right there is an amazing story. If you're still on hold, please stay with us on hold. We'll take a break. Back with more in a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Thanks to Aaron for that call. We are going to talk more about this. We'll talk some London Nights. Uh, we're going to talk about the trucking industry. We'll talk about the Continental Cup of Curling. So much still to come. First news on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This hour, we'll talk about changes to the trucking industry in the last year. There has been a major, major cry for changes, especially in some provinces. Ontario actually was ahead of a lot of provinces, but we'll take a look at what has taken place in various parts of the country in the past year, and that's coming up a little later on. We'll talk some London Knights hockey, and in fact, even before we get into the London Knights, we happen to have with us right now the voice of the Guelph Storm on CJOY in Guelph, Larry Malott. Larry, how are things with you? Not too bad, Mike. I don't sleep much the night before games like this or series like this. I get excited. How about you? Are you sleeping at all tonight? Well, my wife and I extensively babysit our two-year-old grandson, so I catch the sleep where I can. <laughs> well, good luck with that. If if he's a Knights and Storm fan, uh, then you may not be sleeping for other reasons tonight. We've been talking about friendly bets all week, and I know you guys, you and I have gone back and forth a little bit. I'm I'm not asking you to be tied to a net because that's been suggested. But what do you think? And can we throw a little friendly wager together here? I think we can. But one of the suggestions was that the losing. Guy peed his head, and I ran that by my wife. And again, the two-year-old grandson, she thought green hair might kind of scare him. So scratch that one. <laughs> okay, well, what about being tied to a net? This this was one that was, and I'm, I'm okay with this, and I'm okay if we do something different. If if the, the losing team's broadcaster is tied to a net and the, the other one or, or a shooter of his selecting fires 10 pucks a la Goldberg and Mighty Ducks. Say what? Yeah, we we just the the you tie him to the net, and ten pucks later, it's all over and done with. Can we make it simple and just wear the sweater of the other team? <laughs> we probably could. I do have a night sweater hanging in my closet, and uh, and I would gladly offer that up to you. I will leave it out there though, because I am confident. I'm very confident here. I will leave it up there. If you would like me to be tied to a net, and you can fire pucks at me or or select a shooter of your choice, I'm willing to do that. You know, there's a very very good chance either way. Then you could lose or I could lose. I think this is a six or seven game series. It'll be a toss up. All right. Well, we'll at least do a jersey. So you would have to broadcast a little bit in a Knights jersey. I would have to broadcast a bit in a Guelph Storm jersey. But I'm still leaving that tied to the net thing out there. There was waxing also suggested. I've, I've vetoed that just on your behalf. 
How be I take the sweater part and you could go ahead and be tied to a net? I'm in. Okay, we've got it set. I'm confident. Now, in terms of, before we let you go, Guelph beating Kitchener, there were a lot of people who thought that series would be pretty close, and it really wasn't. What did you see the Storm do really, really well in that one? Get healthy. They have been minus players at times five or six out of the lineup since December the 15th. Except for Cam Hillis, they had a completely healthy lineup against the Kitchener Rangers, and Cam Hillis will be back in against the London Knights. And one other thing that we did see was Guelph kind of tweaked their lines a little bit because we've seen Isaac Radcliffe and Nick Suzuki playing a lot with Nate Schnarr, and it looked like maybe that was juggled, and there were now two really scary offensive lines coming at you. Well, quite frankly, maybe four, the way it's going to shape up now. But, uh, yeah, Radcliffe and Suzuki started to play with end whistle again through the Kitchener series. That second line has Nate Schnarr with uh, Torupchenko and Liam Howell. So two lines that can score a lot of goals. Larry Malat joining us, voice of the Guelph Storm on CJOY in Guelph. We've established that we will have a nice little friendly wager throughout the series that may end up in me being tied to a net. I will see. Again, I'm confident. Uh, Larry, one final thing before we go. You've seen a, a lot of really good Guelph Storm teams, and when there is a really good team, you tend to get this vibe around them. Are you feeling any kind of vibe? Yes, I think this is maybe as deep a lineup as I've seen in Guelph Storm teams over the years, and that includes previous teams that have won OHL championship. Okay, well, that says something right there. It all begins tomorrow night in London. Larry, can't wait to see you in town. Thank you for helping to create a nice little friendly wager over the radio. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Micah. We have confirmed you the net. Me yeah. a sweater. Yeah, you you a sweater. I have one in my closet if it's needed. And, yeah, I'll, you tie me to a net. Uh, would you be doing the shooting, or you're not going to grab, you're not going to grab, like, Sean Dursey or somebody like that, are you? Uh, let's Dimitri see. Who has the shot in the team? I'll think about that. That's what I'm worried about. Larry, thank you. <laughs> see you tomorrow, Mike. <laughs> Take care. Should I have done that last part? I probably shouldn't have done, but I'm confident. I feel I believe in what the London Knights can do. I've seen them elevate to levels that have brought them victories against the best of the best that the OHL has to offer. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give up my sweater that is in my closet right now, and, yeah, I'll put that on the line. You want to tie me to a net? Dmitry Samarukov hammer some pucks? Sure. It'll be fun to watch, won't it? I'll take that. All right. Before we close out organ donation completely, I believe, Rob, you still wanted to have a word on organ donation. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh... There's a concept here everybody has missed, and if you try to bring this to Ontario, I hope it's considered. Uh, there's a concept in this country called uh, my body, my choice. Okay. Uh, anyone that uh, it's considered sacrosanct, anyone that attacks that is demonized and thrown to the lions. Then we have, on the other hand, it's uh, going to be our choice to uh, take your organs unless you opt out. You see the weird dichotomy on all this? Well, that doesn't really go along with my body, my choice. And what you're outlining is something that Nova Scotia is bringing into place where it is uh, basically an opt-out situation. I mean. So if you're saying my body, my choice, that's more of opt-in. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm not sure if I follow your logic on that one, but uh, uh, it's a woman's choice over her reproductive rights in this country. But it seems that uh, a man's or another woman's does not have the choice to select whether their organs will be uh, harvested or not unless they opt out. 
That would be the case in Nova Scotia, yes, and that's something that would be looked at. But if you did hear Ronnie Gavsey, the president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network, they're they're looking at something that occurs when you do have the opt-out in that you don't have a conversation about it because everybody is perceived to have consented until they say no, so you never get the conversation. And everybody, as you... You rightfully indicate everybody has the right to say no. And if you've said no, well, that's your choice. We can agree to disagree on this one. But when it comes to Ontario, uh, I will uh, be back to you on this one. Okay, well, hang on then. Maybe I'm missing how you feel about this particular. I thought you had said my body, my choice, which means you have the right to say no. Uh, Am I I, wrong on that? I I have uh, uh, until I sign that donor card on my license. And you can't even sign the donor card anymore. You've got to go to beadonor.ca. That donor card, that doesn't stand up anymore. Okay, I was not aware of that. So I've got to, I have to actively uh, bow out of this. No, you uh, only in Nova Scotia. Here in Ontario, okay. you're if, still good. If I was in Nova Scotia, but you know it's coming here too to Ontario. Well, and everybody's watching what happens in Nova Scotia and, for uh, sure. Once again, uh, the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, Mike. I'm just pointing out that, uh, you know, what happens to your body, a woman's body, when it comes to reproductive rights, is hers and her alone. The government will not make that choice for her. But when it comes to organ donations, now our benevolent government is going to make the choice for us unless we go, actively go there and say, no, you cannot. To me, that's a dichotomy in thought, and uh, I, I can't square it in my own head. Well, Rob, we'll see what unfolds in Nova Scotia, and we'll see if it does end up arriving here in Ontario. Thanks so much for the call. Yep, thank you. Take care. 519-643-2222. We're going to talk some Continental Cup of Curling. We haven't really had a chance to do this. The announcement was made last week that the Continental Cup of Curling is coming back, and we'll see what kind of the the aftermath has been. We'll talk with a guy who has been the face of curling in this area and has brought so many amazing competitions. If you could have said 25 years ago, you know, the Briar... And the Scotties are going to both be played in London in the next 25 years. People would have said, no, they won't. And then Peter Inch came along, and he's made a lot of great things happen. Continental Cup of Curling returns. We're also going to talk some London Knights with Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson in just a little while. You think, hey, it's been kind of like a vacation. They must not be doing too much, waiting for this whole series to start that could ultimately see me tied to a net with uh, somebody firing pucks at me. Um, but no, it's it's not like that at all. And so he'll take us behind the scenes a little bit and we'll find out what's been happening. And then we're also going to talk about the trucking industry because one of the things that got us talking about organ donation, period, was the death of Logan Boulay. He was one of the victims in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, but it was widely told the number of people who benefited from organ donations made by Logan Boulay. And on Monday, everybody's asked to wear a green shirt to recognize organ donation, to spark that conversation. And we got talking about organ donation, and that's that's lasted for a long time on London Live. But we want to look at something else from the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, because 
One of the other things that was raised almost right away, and a lot of the parents of the players have been advocating for change to the trucking industry. Now, Ontario was a little bit different from Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, but overall, there have been calls for changes in regulations to the trucking industry for a long time. So what has happened in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba? How does that reflect what's being done in Ontario? We're going to find that out before the end of the show. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It would appear that the Alliance of American Football always be mindful of the acronym, the AF, terrible acronym, almost as bad as the Conservative Reform Alliance Party, isn't that what it was? Late 90s? Yeah. I still wonder if they did that on purpose. Was it Conservative Reform Alliance Party? Crap. Who didn't see that coming? How dumb are you people? Well, the AF has just released a tweet and a statement. It's not very long. They, of course, on Tuesday suspended operations of their league. They haven't quite made it through one season yet. Uh, Effective immediately, it says now, all AAF players are authorized to sign with NFL clubs. So... No one said they folded yet, but if you've told all of your employees to go and get other jobs, you're not expecting them to come and work for you again. That's where the AF, AF sits. Let's talk about something that is much healthier than the Alliance of American Football, the Continental Cup of Curling. So healthy, in fact, that the way London dazzled two years ago, less than two years ago even, has caused... The organizers to bring the event back. We heard that last week. What has the reaction been? Well, there's one way to find out because the man who's going to get all of this reaction is a man who has been involved with Canadian curling and has done some of the most amazing things for this city in curling in ever. And that is Peter Inch. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. What has the reaction been since the announcement last week that the Continental Cup of Curling is coming back to London? It's been through the top. It's just uh, hard to believe that everybody would be that excited that quick. (laughs) Because didn't they go back to Vegas? They did. They They left Vegas, came to London, went back to Vegas, and said, you know what, London did such a great job, we're going back there. That's amazing. See, you had said this at the time when it was announced the first time that, yeah, it's been in Vegas, but you know what? We think we can do a job that would show them it is worth bringing here. We'll put ourselves side by side by Vegas, and you did it, and now you're being asked to do it again. Yeah, and and we've reached out to the vice chairs and the directors and the volunteers, and uh, everybody's saying, great, we're in, we're right on board. And and that's a big part of it is exactly what they want. They knew would happen and, and what we knew would happen here. Peter, one thing that you had to do the first time around was explain to everybody exactly what this was. Because when we heard Continental Cup of Curling and we heard World's Best Curlers and a format that pits two sides head to head, it was it was almost difficult to grasp until you actually saw it play out. What does it mean now that you don't have to explain that, that people know what's coming? 
Well, it's really, it's a pleasure when you say the Continental Cup and they say, oh, that was such a great time we had there. And, you know, it was the closest finish ever. And I go, okay, that's different. I, I never uh, thought anybody in London would be, would know that much about it. But uh, I was at a business meeting today and stood up and said, you know, we're happy to bring it back. And I had people walking up to me wanting to be part of it. Peter Inch joining us as we talk about the Continental Cup of Curling. So as far as the dates go in 2020, when does it actually come back? Uh, January 9th to the 12th. So it runs from a Thursday to a Sunday. Okay, and that means we're just shy of a year out. In terms of planning this time around, similar to last time? Uh, very much, except we have we were the first time to add a fourth sheet in. So we had the North American challenge, which was Brazil against Canada. The winner went to the Worlds. And we put on wheelchair curling and uh, Little Rocks, and we had uh, UWO and Fanshawe play. Um, So we're doing that again, but now we don't have that North American challenge. And we're saying, what else can we do there to, you know, work with the community to get them more involved, to be out on the ice with these world-class athletes and playing beside them. So um, we're in the midst of just planning all that, but I think you're going to see a lot of unique things on that fourth sheet of ice. Peter Inch, member of the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame and now helping to bring back the Continental Cup of Curling to London. In terms of the players themselves, last time around, we saw countries that are just getting into curling. Any chance that we see that again? Oh, I think so. I mean, it, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be Canada. U.S. will be there. Sweden, Switzerland, Scotland. But then, you'll, you know, Japan's playing so well at the men's worlds right now that it wouldn't uh, surprise me if they aren't there playing in it. When you look at curling as a whole and what you have coming in in other ways in Canada and things happening in other ways, what is happening with the sport right now? Right now, there's huge growth going on. I mean, uh, uh, what we had done here with television is now happening around the world. And so we're seeing growth all over. But unfortunately, uh, the gold medal at the Olympics that went to the U.S., uh, the U.S. is just booming with new clubs, new curlers. Uh, everybody's getting involved, and 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 that's a huge uh, base that that we're seeing is growing very quickly. Really, and the U.S. has has been there before, but hasn't been a power necessarily before. That's changing. It is. You now have that gold medal that you can prance around all of the U.S. and show off, and then the little kids get inspired and and they're the next generation that's going to come up and win that medal. And when you've got a population of 330 million getting interested in something or even a fraction of that population, that's going to make a big difference each and every time. Peter Inch joining us as we talk about the Continental Cup of Curling coming back to London January 9th to 12th of 2020. People are always going to wonder about things like tickets and those sorts of things. That information, where would we look for it for it to become available? So tickets are on sale right now. They can go to curling.ca and then just click under championships and drop down to the Continental Cup. Volunteers were about a a week to 10 days out before we'll be calling for them, but it's on the same site. So you'll just go to curling.ca, drop down the championships and hit Continental Cup.
Okay. Well, we will uh, we'll talk again as you're looking for volunteers in a couple of weeks. But great to know the event is coming back. Great to know that it's looking very similar to to how it did last time with maybe a few new wrinkles. And, uh, Peter, we'll talk curling very soon. We will, Mike. Go Knights, go. Go Knights, go. That is Peter Inch, member of the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame. Coming up, we're going to be talking London Knights. We'll talk with Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson about the series to come, the draft, what the team does when you've got essentially a week and a day off. What do you do? You golf? The weather's getting nicer. The just put your feet up. Uh, something tells me no. And we're also going to look at changes to the trucking industry in the past year since the tragedy that took so many lives in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just got a couple of emails regarding what I'd been talking about. Concerning Donald Trump, I, I don't know what's going on with the President of the United States today. If you go to his Twitter feed, uh, he's learning how to use internet memes. This isn't good. But we also had him making statements about Canada. Here's what U.S. President Donald Trump had to say. Remember, I advocate for Donald Trump hiring a speechwriter. Here's what U.S. President Donald Trump had to say about our country. Canada is very, very tough. You know, we love Canada. We think of the beautiful song and the ice hockey games. Oh, Canada, isn't it beautiful? But in the meantime, they knock the hell out of us on trade. And they have been doing it for a long time. And they're very tough. And they're not at all nice about that situation. But we've made them nice. Okay, that, that's fine. Uh, that's all. I know what he's doing. But really, if you called the Star Spangled Banner a song, if Justin Trudeau stood up and called the Star Spangled Banner a song, how do you think that would go over? You know, come on, please. Get a speechwriter. You're not a comedian. You are, please. If you go to his Twitter feed right now, at POTUS, P-O-T-U-S, at President of the United States, that's what that is, and take a look at what he's up to. You are not a comedian. You're not funny. So why is it that this is becoming a comedy show? Why is it that he's, he's, he's tired of being president and he wants to go back to being an entertainer? That's not what your job is. That's not it at all. When you come to work and your job is, let's say, to deliver something, if you, instead of delivering something... You stand there and do five minutes of stand-up. You're not doing your job. I don't get it. I have no idea. And just imagine if any world leader had called the Star Spangled Banner a song. All right, I'm done. I'm still not impressed. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. The London Knights meet the Guelph Storm in Game 1 of the second round of the OHL playoffs tomorrow night. We happen to have tickets for Game 2 of that series, which will be Sunday afternoon, and you can win those tickets right now as we get set to talk with Rob Simpson, London Knights Associate General Manager. Here's how we're going to do it. Skill testing question? Yes. Can you name both London Knights goalies on the roster right now? You have to name both, and they both have double vowels in their names. That's the only hint I can give to you. 
519-643-2222. If you can name both London Knights goalies and be the first person to do it by phone at 519-643-2222, then you will be off to Game 2 between the London Knights and the Guelph Storm on Sunday afternoon. Phone lines are open. 519-643-2222. Name both goaltenders on the London Knights. Let's talk with Rob Simpson of the London Knights. He is their associate general manager. Fans might think with no games for what will have been more than a week, it's been like a vacation for the London Knights. Rob, I'm I'm guessing that's probably not entirely accurate. Yeah, it's definitely a time where it feels like it's calm and there's not a lot going on when you got a break like that, but... You're constantly, the coaches are going through video, planning the strategy for the next round ahead. You know, you give the little the players a little bit of time off to, to rest and heal up a little bit, and then you get back into practicing and trying to get your pace up and, and get your strategies for the next round series down pat through, through how, practicing and video. How surprised do you think people would be to see just how much video gets broken down by the coaches in order to put together packages for the players? I think most people would would uh, probably be shocked at how much time spent there. Uh, you know, our coaches do a great job of trying to not leave any stone unturned and making sure that when we go into our sessions with our players that they've thought of all angles and every situation that, you know, we're going to be faced here uh, to be able to help the team be successful uh, for the next round for sure. And how do you put it into material that players can absorb? Because it would be easy to say, guys, we put together a seven-hour video. If you want to take this home over the next two nights, have a look at it. It would be very easy to do that. How do you know exactly what to show them? I think you want to get it down to a couple key points to start with. You know, probably three things at the max, maybe four, that you you really think are going to be impactful points within the series that you have to focus on. You want to keep your video shorter. You know, anything, anything past, you know, three minutes of video uh, a day that you're showing them clips or highlights because that's going to expand out as you talk about it. Uh, you're going to lose, you know, people's attention, and that's just not hockey players. That's anybody. So that's a lot of time one of the toughest things from a coaching staff that you have to deal with is now you have all these clips and you feel like they're all impactful clips, but let's really trim them down and, and get the ones that are going to be key. London Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson with us. Rob, coming through the first round, the power play clicking at over 50%. What does that say to you? Is that a confidence thing, or what does it suggest? Oh, definitely. When you're going into a series, a lot of times your special teams are going to be key uh, for you know winning and losing because five-on-five, five, it's just so hard to be able to score and create offense. So. You know, whenever you go into a series, you have your special teams feeling good about themselves and moving the puck well. Uh, it's definitely giving you confidence in the series. You know, you have to see what you know what Guelph is going to bring at us in in the first round from their power play, from their penalty kill, and then you got to make quick adjustments based on what how they've decided to play against us. So it's uh, it's always like a game of chess back and forth. But when you have confidence and belief in yourself and how you've been playing, that's a positive. To see big guns on the London Knights, like Evan Bouchard, like Alex Formanton, like Adam Boquist, putting up huge point totals, what did that mean coming out of the first round? Well, I think a lot of our offense starts from the back end. It's generated from our puck-moving defense. You know, all six guys can move pucks. All six can get up in the ice and 
and make plays and, and help us break out. And I think that's a big part of our team. The less time we can spend in our own end and the quicker we can break the puck out, you know, the faster we can get on the offense and, and we can, you know, allow our D to activate and, and join the rush. So when you have them producing and, and being able to get, you know, goals and assists and running the power play the way they have with 3D on that, I think it's, it's a strength. Very quickly, Guelph, what do they do well? You know what? Guelph has a really good blend of size and skill. Uh, you know, they have a lot of, you know, with the trades that, that George Burnett made there, they've brought in a lot of older players that, you know, are in their final year of, of playoff eligibility. They have a lot of playoff experience. I think that they can play a good combination of, you know, heavy hockey, and then they can also play with the skill that's needed as well, too, which is, you know, a lot of times you don't get that blend. You're kind of one or the other. So I think that's, you know, an obstacle that we're going to have to deal with here. And we're going to have to, you know, even our, our some of our forwards that maybe are a little bit um, undersized, I guess, compared to what theirs are, gonna, it's going to come down to that will and the determination to be able to get to the right areas on the ice and fight through that. So they definitely pose, you know, a lot of... Um, a lot of difficult matchups for us, but something that I think if, you know, we play our game, uh, that's what we can control most, and we feel like we have a good chance to be successful. Lastly, in amongst all of this, you're getting ready for the OHL priority selection. How do you balance that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how everybody always says that. It's right in the middle of your playoffs. Uh, you know what? It's an exciting time of the year with with the draft and the playoffs all at the same time, and you know what? The coaches really uh, do a great job of making sure that the team's ready for for the playoff round and doing everything with the players, so that you know myself and Mark and Colin and the management and scouting staff can just focus on you know on the future here with the OHL draft. So you know we're both we're both involved on both sides, but we also know that you know everybody's got to to make sure that they're doing their own part at this time. Rob, thanks for the time today. No problem, Stubbsy. Rob Simpson, Knights Associate General Manager. Knights and Storm tomorrow night will have coverage starting at 6.30. Game 2 is Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Congratulations to Robert Horth because Robert knew that the two Knights goaltenders each have a double vowel. Jordan Coy and Joseph Raymakers. That was our skill testing question. So Robert is off to Sunday's game. And if you didn't win, well, as we go away to break, here's another chance. We have one more pair of tickets to give away to Sunday's Game 2, Knights and Storm. Here's the skill testing question as we go away to break. It's kind of an existential question. It's a why question. The last time the London Knights and the Guelph Storm met in the postseason was 2014. Guelph beat the Knights, but that didn't end London's season. Why? How come? Tell us why the Knights' season did not end when they lost to Guelph in 2014. If you know, give us a call. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. We'll talk about changes that have occurred in the trucking industry in various parts of Canada as we close out the show. That's next as London Live continues. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Congratulations to Lynn answering our existential London Knights question. Knights lost to Guelph in 2014. Don't worry about that. They weren't eliminated. How come? They hosted the Memorial Cup that year. 
The host this year was not eliminated in the first round. Halifax gets going tomorrow night. Knights and Storm get going tomorrow night. We're also coming up on one year since the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, something that absolutely rocked this country. And one of the things immediately after was a call for changes in regulations in the trucking industry. So what has happened since? Well, Heather Yorex West is a network digital journalist and an Alberta correspondent with Global News. And she has been looking into this and she joins us now. Heather, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Well, it's it's nearing a year since the Humboldt Broncos bus crash, as we outlined, and you've been able to take a look at the trucking industry in various parts of this country. Uh, what did you go looking to find out? Well, the, the tragedy really highlighted a lot of, of major failures within the trucking industry. One of them had to do with driver training, entry-level training requirements across the country. And at the time, a year ago, there was just very little that was required. Only Ontario had um, a programs in place, mandatory entry-level truck driver training programs in place that required more than just challenging the Class 1 driver's exam. So that was a huge gap that was identified, and that's changed quite a bit in the last 12 months. Alberta and Saskatchewan now also have um, mandatory entry-level uh, truck driver training requirements, not programs. Uh, to get into the industry now, you have to have more than 120 hours worth of training before you can get that Class 1 uh, driver license. Uh, Manitoba has also announced that it will be getting these not requirements uh, September 1st. And as well, Transport Canada, the Transport Minister announced uh, a few a months back now that starting at the beginning of next year, these melt programs will be required nationwide. So that is a major change in the last 12 months. But, you know, speaking to a lot of the, the family members of the victims, it's a, a start, but it's not enough. Um, many uh, of those parents are calling for um, a little bit more. They'd like to see graduated license uh, structures set up so that you know, it's not just about getting your Class 1 driver's license and being good to go. They want to be sure that drivers are prepared to drive um, the different kinds of rigs um, in the different kinds of terrain and weather elements. If you get your, your driver's license in the middle of summer on the prairies, it's obviously vastly different than driving a semi-truck through the BC mountains in the middle of winter. No doubt. We're talking with Heather Urex West, network digital journalist and Alberta correspondent with Global News, about some of the changes in various parts of this country in the trucking industry since the Humboldt Broncos bus crashed. When you look at those parents, how many would you say are really advocating for change and advocating for the things they're telling you? Well, I haven't spoken with a parent that isn't looking for change, quite frankly. Um, a lot of them have um, gotten behind a petition that has gone all the way to the House of Commons right now. You can um, you can find a link to that petition online, and, and it's calling for some of the same changes I was just talking about, the graduated license, the, the um, re- regulated training programs right across the country. They'd also like to see uh, a major shift in seatbelt culture, um, in 2020, all new buses that are coming onto the market will have seatbelts. Um, it'll be required that they have seatbelts. But uh, as one of the parents uh, pointed out to me, Chris Joseph, 
you really have to work on changing the culture uh, for these sports teams. You know, they're, they're just not used to putting on those seatbelts uh, every time they get on the highway. But if it was changed so that every bus driver, um, it was up to them to just make it, this is the way, lay down the law, this is how it goes. Um, in a few years, we might see that culture shift so that, you know, just, just like you and I, when we get into the, our cars now, we put on seatbelts and it's second nature. Um, they'd really like to see that become second nature on the buses as well. You've had suggestions that the trucking industry should, in a way, mirror the airline industry, have you not? Yeah, that's something that um, that another one of the victims' father, Scott Thomas, uh, consistently says. He says, you know, uh, if an airline pilot can can wipe out, you know, thirty, forty people in, in a plane crash, and and in this case, you had the the bus driver, um, the semi truck driver, rather, uh, almost kill that many people. Twenty nine people were on that bus. Sixteen uh, were were in, killed and thirteen injured. So, really, it is uh, such a dangerous weapon. The potential there is is very very um, strong to cause so much damage, so much heartache. So, um, yeah, that father would really saw the parallel and would like to see these drivers held to the same standard. Heather Yorks West joining us, network digital journalist and Alberta correspondent with Global News. Heather, one final thing. How are the parents you spoke with doing overall? I think there is the sense of just wanting to get past this weekend. Um, they've been in the spotlight so much the last 12 months, obviously dealing with unspeakable grief. And now they're going to be in the spotlight again, uh, a lot of them gathering in Humboldt for this memorial. And there's a sense that they just want to to get past this weekend and and start to, to move on. Um, a few of the parents say, we want to start getting to the point where we can think about our, our children and our loved ones and, and remember the good times, remember how they lived, and, and not focus so much on, on how they died and the circumstances around how they died. The, the legal part is now finished. The sentencing uh, was last month. And so that's a, another chapter closed. Um, this is the next sort of hurdle. And um, and again, they're just looking forward to, to getting past that and trying to get along with their lives. Heather, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Heather Urex West. She is an Alberta correspondent, network digital journalist with Global News, and took a look at changes to the trucking industry, where in Ontario, you did have at least a little bit more in terms of licensing requirements in order for someone to get onto the road. Now, that has been changed, and we're seeing more of that in Alberta and Saskatchewan. It is coming to Manitoba, and it's a very, very small respite in what has been a horrifyingly tragic situation. But if we can make things better in the future, then at least not everything was lost from what happened a year ago in the past. We want to thank Matt McInnes for his help today on London Live. We have news coming up next with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matt Trevithick. London Live is brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South in London. You are listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL.